Um, we're going to focus now on God's Word. We're continuing our January sermon series called Every Tribe and Nation. And what we're, what we're doing over these couple of weeks is we're wanting to learn from the way that God brought Jews and Gentiles together as one church. And our first reading this morning gives some Old Testament background to, well, maybe it explains some of why Jews and Gentiles were separate in the first place. So we're going to read Leviticus chapter 20 from verse 22. That's Leviticus chapter 20. You'll find it on uh, page, I think it was 170. Leviticus chapter 20 from verse 22, page 170. God says, Keep all my decrees and laws and follow them so that the land where I'm bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. Because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I said to you, You will possess their land. I will give it to you as an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has set you apart from the nations. You must therefore make a distinction between clean and unclean animals and between unclean and clean birds. Do not defile yourselves by any animal or bird or anything that moves along the ground. Those I have set apart as unclean for you. You are to be holy because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Well, this is, this is God's word and uh, you might remember last week we read from the New Testament from Acts chapter 15 about how now that Jesus has come, uh, there's something about that separation, that Old Testament separation, which is now healed up. Last week we read about the council in Jerusalem. And our second reading today is from Galatians chapter 2. And it talks about something that happened probably a little bit before the council in Jerusalem that we read about last week. So Galatians chapter 2, we're going to read from verse 11. It's on page 1658, Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. When Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, 
no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's, uh, let, please keep your Bible open at that passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn to your word now, we pray that you will enable us to understand. We pray that you will enable us to see your love for us and what that means for our daily lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it probably wouldn't surprise you to hear that here in Melbourne, we live in the world's dining capital. According to some info, at least some info I found from 2015, if you compare the number of places where you can eat out with the population, then Melbourne has the, the highest number of cafes and restaurants per person in the world. So why are we so into cafes and restaurants? Is it that we love good food? Sure. But I reckon it's more than just the food. Because, you know, most of the time it's quicker and cheaper to make smashed avo on toast at home rather than going out to a cafe and paying $14 and waiting for your order. So why are we so into going out to eat? And I think it's about connection. I mean, occasionally you'll see someone at the cafe, uh, newspaper open, just by themselves enjoying the environment. But most of the time, people are eating out with others. Because in a big city like ours, we, we interact with people all the time, all day, at the, at the shops, at the station, at work. We've got all these human interactions, but most of it is just at a very surface level. But if, if you want to go beyond the surface, if you want to connect with someone deeply, what do you do? You eat together. There's something about sharing a table that communicates acceptance. There's something about relating to one another over food that, that encourages an openness and provides this space where life is shared. Now, your cultural background might shape where you would most naturally go to eat with others. For younger Aussies, I reckon it's probably the cafe. Uh, if you're if you're my age or older, maybe your natural place is in the backyard around the barbecue. 
If you've grown up in the Middle East or India, your natural place for connection over food might be inside the home. If you're from East Asia, it might be the dumpling bar. But this morning, we're not so much thinking about where we eat. This morning, we're going to think about who we are willing to eat with. Because I think that today's passage shows us that who we're willing to eat with is important. In fact, it can even be a gospel issue. Our focus is going to be on Galatians chapter 2 and verse 14. But what I want to do is, first of all, let's understand the story that leads up to this verse. And, and then I want to point you to an underlying principle that, that's making Paul say the things that he does. And then we'll see two implications of that principle for our lives. So the story. The story is that you've got this growing church in a city called Antioch. It's a church that's made up of Jews and Greeks. Um, there's uh, Paul and Barnabas are part of the church. They're, they're missionaries who have gone out and returned. Um, there's the Apostle Peter. He's come up to spend some time in this church in Antioch as well. And actually, here's an important thing if you want to understand our, our reading. Peter has two names. Uh, just like some of you here have, like there's the name your mother gave you and you've taken on an Aussie name as well. Um, Peter is also known as Kephas. So in this passage, when it talks about Kephas, that's Peter. Now anyway, at first, when Peter gets there, he's just as happy to eat with the Greeks as he is happy to eat with the Jews. But then something happens. Then there's, there's a group of visitors that come up from the church in Jerusalem to spend some time in Antioch. It just seems like everyone's turning up in this church. And, and this group have been sent by Jesus' brother, James. These guys are very conservative Jews. And, and they're living by the Old Testament pattern that we read, read about from the book of Leviticus, where, where Jews will stay separate from the other races. And in our reading, we saw that the idea, at least in the Old Testament, the idea is if God's people are going to remain holy, then you can't sit and eat and build relationships with the unbelieving, idol-worshipping nations around you. And so, so Peter starts to feel a bit of pressure from these guys. I'm trying to imagine what it would have looked like. Maybe, maybe one time... Uh, Peter's Jewish friends were organising a get-together and Peter says, oh, hey, do you, do you want me to invite the Greek guys as well? Mm, no, Peter, Peter, no, this is, this is just a get-together for our people. You know, our people, they're, they're a long way from home, they're homesick. Let's just have a, a good old Jewish meal together. And Peter says, oh, I guess so. Maybe another time Peter was on his way to eat with the Greeks and someone says, hey, Peter, Peter, you're an important guy. You've only got limited time you know, while you're staying here in Antioch. Shouldn't you just be concentrating on your own people? I mean, you can connect with your own people better than you can connect with those foreigners. And Peter thinks, oh, I guess so. 
I mean, that's, that's me trying to imagine it. What it says in Galatians 2 verse 12 is, Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. Now, Paul sees this happening. He sees that in his church there's, there's a gap opening up between the Jews and the Greeks. And sure, they're, they're all still members of the church, but relationships are growing distant because they're not eating together. And so verse 14, Paul says, Hey, when I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Kephas in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you can force Gentiles to follow, follow Jewish customs? And so that's the, that's the scene. Can you sort of keep that picture in your mind? Um, because the reason Paul's speaking up at this moment is that he, he sees that there's a principle at stake. The principle, you can see this in verse 16. He says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the principle. So what does he mean? We are justified by faith. Justified. Just to be justified, it's a legal term. It means that you are declared to be righteous. It's connected with the idea, well, God is the final judge of everyone. He gets to declare who's righteous and who's not. Now, of course, the reality is that, I mean, who among us is righteous in ourselves? None of us have loved God as we should. All of us have, in different ways, disobeyed God. None of us is able to present a righteous record to God and say, God, look at my life, I got it all right. But by God's grace, we are able to receive a righteous record from God. So none of us can present a righteous record to God, but by his grace, we can receive a righteous record from God, Because the good news is that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That is, Jesus came and he, he lived that life of obedience. He lived that life where he did get it right. And in his death, he paid the price for sin. And as living, resurrected Savior, he offers that if you come to him, you can receive his righteous record as your own. Maybe I can try and illustrate this by telling you a story. I want you to imagine that there's a young guy named Jonathan. We don't have any Jonathans here this morning. Good, Jonathan. Anyway, Jonathan never got on with his parents. And one day Jonathan decided, it's time, I'm going to move out by myself. His friends helped him shift to a little place that he found. It was actually it was way outside of Melbourne. And the problem is pretty soon Jonathan figured out there's not much public transport out here. And 
I still need to get to work. I actually kind of need a car to get to work. At one time, Jonathan tried hitchhiking, and that was scary, and he got there late, and he's afraid that he's going to lose his job. But then he sees a car for sale. It's, you know, there's a, a bit of, you know, written on the, uh, on the, on the windscreen. It says $3,500 with roadworthy. He thinks, oh, I could get that car. The problem is, the cost of living is just making it impossible. I mean, by the time he pays his rent and he does his shopping, there's nothing left. He can't save. In fact, worse than that, bit by bit, his credit card debt is getting higher and higher and higher until he's maxed out, just living and eating. Now, even though Jonathan has been a difficult son, all through this time, his parents never stop loving him. From time to time, they call, and one day, Jonathan decides, yep, you know what, it's time for me to pick up. And he tells them what his situation is. And his parents say, Jonathan, we want to, we love you. We want to help you. Let us give you what you need to pay your debts and to buy that car. And Jonathan thinks about it. I mean, he's been all proud. He's been, oh, I don't need you, mum and dad. And, but he decides, you know what? It, maybe it's time to trust again. Maybe it's time to swallow my pride and open the door to a relationship with my parents. And he says, okay, yes, thank you. Well, five minutes later, he pulls out his phone, he opens the banking app, and there it is. There it is. He hasn't done anything to earn it. But in an instant, his debts are paid He has what he needs. The load is off his shoulders and it's all at the expense of his loving parents. And that's kind of how justification works. I mean, what God gives us is better than a car. Um, What God gives us is the riches of Christ's death and obedient life transferred into our account. I mean, it's a lot more expensive than a few thousand dollars. This is, this is the Son of God giving his life. And we haven't done anything to earn this. It's all at the expense of Jesus who gave himself willingly because he loves us. Now, here's the key thing for our passage. When is it? When is it that God transfers the riches of Christ into our account? And the answer that Paul says, that's what happens in the moment that you believe. When you have faith in Jesus, when you say, yeah, I'm going to trust him, the transfer happens. Now, Okay, that's the principle, but but what does this have to do with Jews and Gentiles eating together? What does it have to do with this? Well, maybe we can think through this situation from the point of view of one of the Greek people in that church. 
You see, imagine one of the the Gentiles sits there and he watches what's happening with Peter and he says, Hey, Peter, I trust in Christ, but it just just seems from the way you're acting that my faith in Christ is not enough for you to accept me. Peter, it, it seems like if I really want a seat at the table of God's people, it seems like there's something more that I have to do seems that I have to maybe, what, is, what do I have to do? Is it, do I have to be circumcised? Do I have to eat Jewish food? Do I have to, what do I have to do? It seems like you're saying, Peter, it seems like you're saying that Christ's death is not enough. It seems like you're saying that what really counts is some extra thing that I haven't done yet. And this is why Paul sees that this situation is actually a gospel issue because the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross is that it's enough that at the cross he paid for our sins and we can come to God not because of what we've done but because of what he did. And the English preacher John Stott puts it like this. He says, if God does not require this work of the law called circumcision before he accepts them, how dare we impose a condition upon them which he does not impose? If God's accepted them, how can we reject them? If he receives them into his fellowship, shall we deny them ours? And so that's the principle. We are justified by faith. And now let's zoom in on verse 14 and see two very practical ways that this actually lands in our lives. Here's the first implication. The truth of the gospel is not only... shouldn't be the word two there. The truth of the gospel is not only for us to believe and teach, but also to live out in our relationships. So in verse 14, uh, what does it say in verse 14? When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. That word in English, acting in line. In the original language, the word is orthopodane, which means straight walking. Just, just like we might go to an orthodontist to get straight teeth. Orthopodane means straight walking. Or here's another word that we use in English. Orthodox. Orthodox means straight thinking. If we say we're orthodox Christians, orthodox believers, we're saying that in our thinking, what we believe lines up with the gospel of Jesus. Now, in today's passage, there's no suggestion that Peter has stopped being orthodox in his thinking. If if you said to Peter, Hey, Peter, do you believe that we're justified by faith and not by our own works? Peter would have said, Of course I do. That's the gospel. But the problem here is that the practicalities of his life are not lining up with what he believes. And in Peter's case, it's because of fear. There's this peer pressure going on. He's not walking straight. 
And so, friends, we want to live a godly life. We begin by believing the gospel. We're justified by faith. And so let's go on and learn to line up our lives with the gospel that we believe. We're not saved by our straight walking. God doesn't accept us because of our straight walking. But if we are saved, let's walk straight. And so the the very practical question is, so who are you willing to eat with? That is, who are you willing to form relationships with? Uh, The American preacher Tim Keller says, we may feel uncomfortable around people whose cultural emphases are different to ours. And we may respond to all this as Peter did, in apparently well-mannered ways. We politely sit by those other people in church, but we won't eat with them. We won't really become friends with them. We won't socialise with them, sharing our lives and homes and things with them. We, We keep relationships formal and see them at official church meetings only. And all this comes from not living in line with the gospel. Now, as you apply this to your own life, you've got to apply it wisely. Um, Some of you are naturally outgoing people and you find it easy to connect with everyone. Some of you are shy and forming relationships is slower. It takes longer. That's okay. Some of you, your family responsibilities or your stage of life might affect how many people you can connect with deeply. I mean, if we're in a church of 100 people, you can't actually be close friends with every single person. I've tried, but there's just there's limits. Like Jesus had his three and his 12 and his 72, and he spent more time with some than others. But what this passage does say is don't, Write somebody off just because of their culture or background or their age. I've, I've heard Christians say, oh, there's, there's no one I can relate to at church. There's no one like me. But hang on, if you trust in Christ, if you're willing to make Christ central in your relationships with others, then actually what you have in common is more significant than any of your differences. Here's a second implication. The church is made up not only of many nationalities, but also of many cultures. Now, what I mean, maybe I can try and explain what I mean by comparing Christianity with Islam. Um, So take Islam. Islam includes many nationalities. Islam started in Arabia, but today most Muslims live outside of Arabia. So it covers many nations. However, culturally in Islam, if you want to do some of those key things like recite the word of God or you should, you know, you should really do it in Arabic, or if you want to pray to God, you should really do it in Arabic. It's this idea that somehow Arabic is the language of heaven and if you, you really want to get closer to heaven, you'll 
end up being a bit more Arabic. Whereas since the beginning in Christianity, there's been an effort to translate the gospel into local languages and to adapt our worship to each local culture. And so when Paul says at the end of 14, hang on, how is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's actually saying it's important that we keep the church as a community where there's space for multiple cultures, united by common faith in Christ. Now, in this passage, kind of the, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Our church, as far as I'm aware, we, we don't have Jews, but we've got Italians and Indians and Anglos. And, and I think the point is that if you can't insist that Jewish customs are superior to everybody else's, even with like all that Old Testament backing that, that Jewish customs have, if you can't insist that they're superior, that they're the way to connect with God, well, then you definitely can't insist on English culture or Chinese culture or working class culture or professional culture as if it's superior and closer to God. Not that I'm suggesting everything's relative. Um, see, I've put, I've put a little asterisk there because... Okay, the gospel can be expressed within any culture. But the gospel also modifies. The gospel also pushes back on every culture. I mean, strictly speaking, think about this situation. Strictly speaking, it was kind of it was part of Jewish culture that you keep to yourselves and you look down on everybody else. And so when Paul comes along and says, no, 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 you should accept the Gentiles, Paul's actually telling them, you're going to have to let go of part of your culture, part of how you grew up. And, you know, every culture in some ways says, oh, look, we're actually superior because of dot, 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 but, and everyone else is just a bit weird. Like every, every culture does that. Every culture is made up of... There's things that are good and beautiful. And there's also things that are neutral, just different ways, different options, different methods of doing things. And in every culture, there are in some ways things which express opposition to God. The reality is that if we've come to Christ, then we have, each of us, a dual identity. Just like some of you are dual citizens as Christians. We are, we're here, but we're citizens of heaven. Uh, we've got our, our new identity as children of God, justified by faith in Jesus. And we also have our cultural identity that we grew up with. Now, how we put these two identities together is so important. Because I reckon there's two possibilities. I reckon it's possible to be a cultural Christian or a gospel Christian? Let me explain. A cultural Christian is someone who, who likes Jesus, someone who, who likes to identify as one of Jesus' people. A cultural Christian is happy to wear Jesus on the outside. But what really drives his heart 
are those deep values of his culture and the desire for honour in his culture or, and the priorities. And you're constantly looking for the approval of your culture. A cultural Christian will live in line with the gospel when that's compatible with your culture, but not when, when the gospel calls for something that's a bit awkward. If you're a cultural Christian, you might feel threatened when you come into contact with people who do things differently. As a cultural Christian, you'll easily judge others who don't meet up to your culture's standards. And actually, in this moment, Peter was functioning like a cultural Christian because he fears, he's driven by a fear of the judgment of his culture. Whereas Paul says, no, no, Peter, remember your culture is no longer at the centre of your identity. Have a look down at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. This is what I mean by a gospel Christian. A gospel Christian means that you're still you. You still have your background. You still wear your culture on the outside. But in your heart... What matters more than anything is Christ. And since in Christ you have already been declared righteous by God, the true judge has already said you're righteous, then you don't have to fear anybody's judgment, do you? Because the judgment that matters has been dealt with at the cross. So as gospel Christians... We have our culture, we hold on to our culture, but loosely. I mean, I've been raised as an Aussie bloke. I love cricket and football and camping and DIY projects. But I need to enjoy those things without looking down on people who don't know about cricket or football or camping or DIY projects. We need to hold on to our culture loosely enough that we can put it aside when it helps us to live in loving unity with Christian brothers and sisters. And so can you see how this this truth we believe about justification by faith is actually life-changing? When we believe in Christ, we're drawn into this new relationship with God and we have this status that we are declared righteous and we don't fear judgment. And today we've seen how this new relationship with God has all sorts of implications for our relationships here on earth. Uh, Rene Padilla is a, a Christian teacher from Ecuador And he says, the same act that reconciles you to God simultaneously introduces you to a community where people find their identity in Jesus Christ rather than race, culture, social class or sex. So friends, since we have been justified by faith out of the love of God, the free gift of God, let's learn to walk straight Let's show by our lives and our relationships that God's gospel is more important than human divisions. 
That's what I mean when I say let's eat in line with the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have been so free and loving and generous in your grace with us. Father, we confess that it's part of our sinful nature that we so easily judge and look down on others. And I pray that you will, as we, as we grow deeper into the gospel of your grace, that you will enable us to look on others with that same grace that you will enable us to live in a joyful experience of unity in him, knowing that what we have in him is more important than anything which could divide us. Father, please help us. Work among us by your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.